so happy to be here with you all. Please find your Bibles and stay standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's passage is in Colossians chapter 2 on page 984 in the Bibles around the room. We'll be starting in verse 6. Colossians chapter 2. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. Here's why. The Talmud, the Vedas, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, there are many texts that claim to be sacred writings, but none other than the one you hold in your hand is of divine origin. We don't say this arrogantly. On the contrary, we humbly and gratefully accept the truth from the one true God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Powerful resurrector of the dead, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go for that? Expose the philosophies and empty lies that hold us captive. And in our hearts, exalt the fullness of your Son, the only one in whom we are made right with you. Illuminate our understanding of the richness of the rescue you have wrought. Place your spirit between Pastor Kyle's mouth and the hearts of every one of the hearers in this room so we receive exactly what you want us to know and have the power to live it out. In the name of our living Lord, who became our damning record of debt on the cross. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, Living Stones. It's nice to have some sunshine out, right? Spring is actually here. I love it. I was outside for 15 minutes and got sunburned. That's how it is for pasty people. Well, welcome to Living Stones. I know uh, today's a big day across Living Stones churches. We're doing, we're calling today Baptism Sunday. And uh, all over Living Stones, people are getting baptized. And so some of you might be uh, here as a guest witnessing somebody being baptized, somebody that you love or a friend. 
and uh, welcome here. You may have a lot of questions about Christianity. You may be also somebody here who's been coming for a while and you're exploring Christianity. And today is one of the best days you could be here because we're going to be talking about really the essence and the heart and soul of our faith. Um, I think across Livingstone's churches today, there's over 35 people getting baptized. So that's pretty cool. Northern Nevada. God is on the move. And um, you might wonder, what is baptism? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Especially if you're not like into church or the Bible or, you know, you've probably just seen all sorts of weird things about baptism. I like to refer to Nacho Libre, the great theologian, when he says to Stephen, he says, I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? And Stephen says, because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me just because I only believe in science. And then Nacho says, but tonight we're going up against Satan's cavemen. And I thought it would be a good idea for you too. And then he takes his head and splashes him and he says, praise the Lord. <laughs> you see, baptism is something that is, can, can be confusing to people. And people sometimes are wondering, what is it about? Sometimes it's seen as some sort of Christian magic that if you just partake in this event, then all of a sudden the Lord is with you. And like Nacho Libre is saying, you're going to win against Satan's cavemen. What is baptism? That's a good question. What we're going to be finding from the text today is this. Baptism proclaims outwardly what God has done inwardly. That's what baptism is. It proclaims outwardly what God has done inwardly. And so as we roll through this text today, here's the main thing that I want you to look at is simply this. Look what God has done. And, and for the people getting baptized today, we're going to hear their stories. And this is an opportunity to look what God has done. And then as you are watching them get baptized, you're supposed to remember your baptism. It's like every time I go to a wedding and I'm sitting there and, you know, the everybody stands up and the bride walks down the aisle. I always start crying because I think of when my bride walked down the aisle. And it, I wasn't going for that. Come on. All right. I, I brownie points, though, probably for sure. for sure. The point is, the point is, we need to... Uh, when we witness people get baptized, it's a good reminder for us as a church, not to just see what God has done with them, but to remember what God has done in us. Look what God has done. Now, Colossians 2 verses 6 through 15 is like a fine dining experience. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's like this collective meal, and you read the whole story, you take it all in at once, it's a glorious thing, like going to In-N-Out Burger, and you have a double-double, and fries, and a strawberry milkshake, and the whole thing all together is glorious. But a fine dining experience is different, because your portions are small, and you savor every bite. And that literally is this text here. I could preach this text for a year. And we're going to, and so we got 40 minutes, okay? And we're, we're just going to try to savor each word here. We're going to try to savor um, each sentence as we go through this text. And so really, we're just going to look what God has done. So the first thing that God has done as revealed in this text is this. God has given us a walk with Jesus. When somebody gets baptized, 
and becomes a Christian, that's what they're saying. They're saying, I am walking with Jesus. I'm walking with him. I'm going public. It's Facebook official. I am walking with Jesus. And this is something that God has given us. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2, which, by the way, is on page 984 in the Bibles around the room. It says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so, what does it say? Walk with him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It says, walk with him. In the Bible, the term walk is a, it means your faith or your life of faith with God. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, you received it. Faith in Jesus is something you receive. It's not something you earn. Contrary to popular belief, many people think that faith and, and life with Jesus is something that God gives you for cleaning your life up. But that's not it. Faith is a gift of grace. It's something that God gives to you, and the only thing you do is you receive it. And then he says, so also walk with him. And, and what this shows us is that God expects our Christianity to be a walk. Uh, not a walk in the park, okay? But a walk. Uh, a living and an active and a continual relationship with your loving Lord. Um, one of my wife's and I's favorite thing to do is put the kids down and then uh, we pour a glass of wine and we walk around the cul-de-sac and we just enjoy each other's company. That's what your life is. And sometimes when things are going really difficult for us as a family and we're really stressed out and we're overwhelmed, we're like, we need to go on a walk. We need to go be with each other because then with each other, we can endure through this hardship. And that's what God has given us in Christ Jesus, this walk. And it's just, it's so filled with meaning because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. But when they sinned and sin entered the world, that walk was fractured. And so God had to keep coming to his people and through faith they could walk with him. Noah was a man who walked with God. Abraham was a man who walked with God and they did it by faith. And that is how we walk with God. It's by faith. It's not by your performance. And so what does this walk look like? He gives us three words. He says rooted, built up, and established. Now, um, he uses three different analogies right here in these three words. So he says rooted like a tree. When you become a Christian, your faith is to be rooted like a tree. A tree's roots are... They reach for life and sustenance. Um, they reach for nourishment. And we're all reaching for life and sustenance somewhere. Um, maybe you're reaching for life and sustenance in a relationship. Or you're reaching for life and sustenance in um, your job or your kids or your family or what other people think about you or your success. We all think that these things will give us life. And if we could just get these things, then we'll be fulfilled. Well, the Christian doesn't think like that. The Christian says, no, I'm reaching for Jesus and in him I'm fulfilled. In him I have life and sustenance. So you're rooted like a tree. And that's why um, Psalm 1 says we become like trees planted by streams of water that can last season in and season out because we're rooted in Jesus, the living water. 
And then the next word he uses is this idea, built up. This is built up like a building. And so what that means is a building, when it's built up, it, it finds strength and maturity. It develops. And so what this is a promise to you is this, is that when you become a Christian, there will be progress in your life. It may be at a snail's pace, but there will be progress. And it may be a lot ups, it may be three steps forward, two steps back, but there will be progress. You may go forward a little bit and then you may fall back a little bit, but there will be progress over time. Those who really belong to God should be able to look back and say, man, 10 years ago, what was I thinking? I was a fool. But now look at my faith now. And the progress as defined here, the maturity as defined here, is not that you become a better religious person. It's that you start living in deeper and truer faith. That your trust is shown in, in um, deeper ways. And so there should be maturity that happens. You're built up. And then, then it says, and then you're established. Now this is a word that is used in court. It's established like a law in court. When a law is established in court, it's done. It's not up in the air. It's not wavering back and forth. It's fixed. It is determined. And this is what God is seeking to do in his people, is he's seeking to give us fixed and determined faith in him, not wavering back and forth, but fixed on Christ. And so here's the nerd nugget of this all, okay? Is the word rooted, built up, and him, if you uh, built up and established, if you were to look at those in the original language, they're all in the passive tense. Meaning, it's not us who does the work. It's God who does the work. He is the one who has rooted us in Christ. He is the one who is building us up together so that we can follow him. And he is the one who's giving us more and more dishes of faith. He is the one doing the work. And that's great news. Because sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm saying, God, I don't think I have the strength to walk with you today. But when I cry out to God, God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I will give you the strength. He is the one who does the work. And so what this means is we don't need, even when we're thinking about our friends that are, have ceased to walk with Jesus, we don't need to beat them. We need to pray to God. We need to go and knock on God's door and say, God, please bring them back to you since it's you who does the work. And as you see here, it says, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving, the measure of your walk with God is your thanksgiving. Is your life abounding with thanksgiving? You want to take a spiritual pulse on where you're at with Jesus? Look at how how much thanksgiving you have in your life. Look at how much gratitude you have. Would people describe you as somebody abounding with thanksgiving? That's kind of a condemning phrase right there for me. But this is what we're called to. And it's God who does the work. So God has given us this walk with Jesus. Okay, the second thing is God has revealed Jesus as the whole and sufficient truth. Look at verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. So here's what he's, he's saying here. He's like, look, he's speaking to this church in the ancient city of Colossae. And he says, look, there's going to be people who come around 
and they're going to say things like, it's nice that you believe in Jesus and stuff, but you need some other things going on. You need some other truths. And the primary lies that Paul is addressing here, and he, and he doesn't mince his word, he calls them empty deceit. He's saying that any truth that tries to say you need to add to Jesus is human tradition and empty deceit, and it comes from demons. He's not mincing his words, okay? He says, uh, these things end up taking us captive when we believe them. They enslave us. And so the primary lies that he was defending here in Colossae, there was a handful of them. So first, he was dealing with um, polytheistic mysticism. Okay, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Polytheistic mysticism. It's this idea that people would say, well, Jesus is just a God, but there's also these other gods, all these other Roman gods. And so he's just one of them. And you can access them by going through various rituals and, you know, pushing the right buttons on the vending machine, and then the God will give you whatever you want. That was one thing that he was saying. And he was like, no, Jesus is the only God. The second thing that he was dealing with um, was Jewish legalism. And they were saying, well, it's nice that you believe in Jesus and everything, and God's given you grace, but you still have to obey all of the Old Testament Mosaic law. You still have to observe the, the dietary laws and the clothing laws and the Sabbath laws and, and the ceremonial laws. It's this, I call this Jesus plus theology. And, and people are going to come at us in the Christian world, and they're going to say, well, it's nice that you have faith, but you really need to add all these other Christian traditions onto your life, and then you're really a Christian. Well, Jesus plus anything is nothing. And Jesus plus nothing is everything. And so Paul's like, no, that's not it either. And then they were also dealing with this idea of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism um, is this idea of like there's secret knowledge out there. And, and it's the secret spiritual knowledge. And a lot of Gnostics believe that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good. And so they would do things to like beat the flesh or they would um, do different practices to deprive the flesh because they think in doing that that they were making their spirit stronger. And there's forms of this in, in our culture today, whether it's denying your desires or whether it's um, uh, seeking secret power in other places. Um, those are some forms of some types of Gnostic belief. And he's like, no, Jesus has made himself available to you all. And then the last one is there was like folklore superstition. Now, the best idea of uh, folklore superstition that I think we can think of in our culture, has you ever heard the phrase knock on wood? That phrase is folklore superstition from the Germanic people. And the German uh, people, they believe that if they knocked on a tree, they would have access to the spirits because they believe that spirits lived in trees. Or sometimes if they were bragging about their good fortune, sometimes they would knock on wood to try to get the spirits to not hear so that the spirits would not interfere with their good fortune going on in their life. And so that was an idea of folklore superstition. And this stuff exists all the time in our culture today too. You know, you have things like we really think sometimes if we put a dream catcher above our bed, it'll cap capture all of our bad dreams. Um, there's different things out there like if you have your lucky rabbit's foot or don't walk underneath a ladder, you'll have bad luck. I, and I know I'm not crazy because I've like literally done some of this stuff, okay? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I, maybe, I don't know. I might want to try it. And Paul is saying to us, you don't need to do all that. It just enslaves you. 
It's not Jesus plus anything. He is the whole and sufficient truth. This is what it says in verse 9. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is 100% God. He's the 100% revelation of who God is. So you don't have to look elsewhere. You don't have to be like, well, Jesus is nice, but let's look to the stars. No, you can just look to Jesus, the creator of the stars. And he dwelled bodily, meaning he entered human history. Christianity, a lot of my friends, when I talk to my friends, they're like, it's just like a, the Bible is just a bunch of folklore and good stories. Like, no, the Bible is history. Like, Jesus really lived. He really walked on this earth. He really had disciples. He really sent his disciples out all over the world. Like, this is history. And, and, and he came to be with us. And it says, also, in him you are also, or it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him. So he's speaking to the church, and he says, and as a church, you guys have been filled with him through his Holy Spirit. Meaning that God is not just this distant force out there who wants you to be good so that you can go to heaven. God has filled his people and is involved in every intimate detail and thought of our lives. So you have access to him right now. You don't have to go and do a bunch of rituals. You don't have to go and beat yourself up to get access to Jesus or God. You can just go straight to God right now through Jesus Christ. Because he's with us more than we know. And, and it says also here, in the next line, it says, who is the head and rule of, of all authority. He's the rule and head of all authority. Um, the head is the ruler of the body. Does anybody disagree with that? Like the hand doesn't get to argue with the head and be like, you know what? And start slapping yourself. I want to be the ruler of the body. No. That will never happen. The hand doesn't determine where the body wants to go. The hand's not like, I want to go over here. And your body's like, I want to go over here. Like that never happens. The head is the ruler of the body. And that's a good thing. Because if the hand was the ruler of the body, we'd be in trouble. If the feet were the ruler of the body, we'd be in trouble. The head is the ruler of the body. And the job of the head is to protect and care for and nourish the body. And Jesus is the head of his people. And that's a good thing. And he is good to nourish and, and, and protect and lead us into a life of flourishing. But he is the head. He is the absolute authority. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so when somebody gets baptized, what they're saying is not only are they saying, I'm walking with Jesus, they're saying, he's my king. And so what that means is when, when they come out of the water, they're saying, from this day forward, if I get into an altercation with God, God wins. If I have disagreements with what the Bible says and what Jesus says and what I believe to be true, Jesus wins. And as we as Christians, we come every week and we, and we watch this, what we're supposed to be, remember is we say, Okay, yeah, I remember. Jesus is the head and ruler of my life. And that's a good thing. Because left to my own devices, I'd leave myself into a lot of trouble. I'd leave myself into a lot of trouble. And so when somebody also gets baptized, they're also saying, I need no further truth. Jesus is sufficient. I don't need to do Jesus plus religion. 
I don't need to do Jesus plus mysticism or Gnosticism or seeking some sort of new age spirituality or some sort of folklore superstition. I just need Jesus and I have full access to the power of the living God. Which leads me to another soapbox. This means that we need to stop treating church like it's a country club. Church is where we have access to the living God. Life with Jesus is real access to the creator of the universe. It's not something you add to your life so you feel good about yourself. It's not something so that you can come and then you can get right before God and then you can leave and live however you want. Church, Christianity, is all about power of the living God in us. But I think sometimes we don't experience that power because we, we just make it, we make it to be less than what it really is. We make it to be like a country club. And it's no different than joining, you know, the, if you're a kid, joining the Boys and Girls Club or the summer program. Or if you're an adult, joining like the Rotary Club or even Softball League where you can have some friends and do some fun things. Church is about seeking the living God for he is in us. Amen, church? All right. Okay, the next thing that uh, baptism shows us in this text shows us is that God has transformed us from the inside out. He's transformed us from the inside out. Now, here's going to be some interesting phrases. So Paul uses three words here to talk about this inner transformation. He uses the word circumcision, and then he uses the word baptism, and then he talks about the concept of resurrection. Okay, you guys got those words? Those are important words for your life. Circumcision, baptism, resurrection. So the first is circumcision. Okay, it says this. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you are new to the Bible, this is weird, is it not? You're like, why are we talking about, I have not been circumcised maybe. You're like, I'm not, is that what they're doing in the room back there before they get in the pool? No, it's not what we're doing. We don't have some like deacon back there. All right, come on into the office, okay? This is, circumcision is a big deal in the Bible, okay? Especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, okay, now, throughout the entirety of the Bible, people connect with God through faith, through trusting in him, nothing else. It's just simply trusting in him. That's how people connect with God. But in the Old Testament, God commanded his people that the mark of faith, that if they had faith, the thing that they had to do in response was the males of the household had to be circumcised. There had to be a piercing of flesh to symbolize that the household was saved. And so that's what they would do. But circumcision fell short. It wasn't enough. Because throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God rebukes his people. He says, you guys have circumcised flesh, but you don't have circumcised hearts. Like, what I want you to have is a heart that loves me. Look at what Deuteronomy uh, 30 says. It's going to be on the screen. It says this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
that you may live. In other words, God is saying there's going to come a day, he's saying to the Old Testament saints, when God's going to work on your heart in such a way where your, where your life with him is not just this outward thing, it's an inward thing, where it starts in your heart. This is why David prays in the Psalms, create in me a clean heart, O God. He knows that he needs a new and changed heart. And so he's calling out for God to do this work in his heart. Okay, and then Ezekiel 36, 26 promises this. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's like saying, look, I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that will love me, a heart that will want me. And so that's what Paul is referring to when he says this, that God has given you a circumcision of the heart that's made without hands because it's God who does the work. And this is before there was open heart surgery, okay? This is saying God has come into our hearts and given us new affections, new desires. He's convicted us of our sin and he's transformed us from the inside out. So this is why in Acts chapter two, when Peter preaches the gospel, what does it say? After that he preached, it says the people were cut to the heart, Okay. Now, some translations translate it, they were cut to the quick, like if you clip your fingernails too far, okay, and that hurts. Well, it was kind of like that, but it says they were cut to the heart. What it's saying is when the Holy Spirit fell on the people, God gave his people new hearts so that our life with God doesn't have to be simply this outward obedience. It's also an inward obedience from the inside out. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what he's getting at. Then the second thing he says is this. He's like, he equates it to baptism. He says, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so he uses this word baptism. Now, baptism in the ancient world was a word that was used when something was submerged and then it would come out with a different color or flavor. So they would use it for um, tying their dyeing their clothes, okay? So how many kids in here at school, you guys have done tie-dye at school? Raise your hands, kids. You guys done tie-dye at school, right? Adults, I say Tony over there raising his hand. I did tie-dye. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Tony. Wear that shirt next week, okay? <laughs> okay, so baptism is when you dip something in and then you pull it out and it looks totally different. It's a, there's a transformation that happens. And so uh, th th he's, he's getting at this concept that when you believe in Jesus, there's a transformation that happens. You change. You become new. You become different. You have a semblance of your old self, but you're a new self. And then, and then uh, baptism was also used just simply to mean the word washing. Washing, like a bath. And just as water washes away dirt, God has done the work in our hearts to wash away our sins. And so um, cleansing is, is a theme in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 6, when God saw the evil that prevailed in the entire world, what did he do? He sent a flood and he baptized the world to cleanse it. But how did he baptize it? He baptized it in his wrath, in his punishment. He baptized it in death. But here's the good news. It says you were, you were buried with Jesus in baptism. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus took 
the punishment for your sins. He was thrown into the wrath of God so that you could be cleansed. It's still a cleansing through wrath, except now Jesus takes your place. And because of that, you've been cleansed. And if you would just turn your eyes down to verse 14, it says by this, he says um, that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So when somebody gets baptized and they come out of the water, here's what they're saying. I'm forgiven today and forever. I'm cleansed today and forever. It's not just that they have a new slate. As some, and that's what the Catholics believe. You get baptized and it gives you a clean slate and then now it's on your faith and your works. No, it's just you're baptized and you're forgiven today and forever. That's what it means. Because the debt that was over your head for your sins has been canceled because it was nailed to Jesus on the cross. And so the Bible calls sin debt. It means that we've taken the good things of God and used it for our own passions and evil desires. And in so doing, we've racked up debt against God. And that debt is condemning all of us in humanity. It's hanging over our heads and, it's, and it weighs us down. Have you ever had a lot of debt? A couple years ago, we found out we messed up um, on some things with our taxes and we got a letter saying, actually we were talking to our tax guys like, you guys might owe $30,000 to the IRS. And we're like, we don't have $30,000. And that weighed on us for two years. We had to go through this process. And I'll never forget when we received a letter that said, you owe nothing. In fact, you're getting $14,000 back. We danced. <laughs> and that's just barely scratching the surface of the type of debt that we've racked up against God and that he's taken on the cross. The psalmist says to God, God, if you were to count my iniquities, who could stand? I wouldn't even be able to stand in your presence. But God hung in our place so we could stand in his presence. And so when Jesus, it's, I love how it says that he set aside nailing it to the cross. What was nailed to the cross? Our Lord was nailed to the cross. And as he was nailed to the cross, all of your sin all of your idolatry, all of your coveting, all of your lack of gratitude and your selfishness and your perversion and your lust and all those things that you've done, all of your anger and your irritability and your murderous thoughts and your lying, your cheating and your stealing, all of that stuff where you think that you're better than other people, but if God really exposed your heart, everybody would see who you really are, all that stuff was put on Jesus on the cross. Even the things that you can't forgive yourself for, God has put on Jesus on the cross. You're cleared. And when somebody gets baptized, that's what they're saying. I'm cleared. I'm forgiven. The debt has been paid, and I didn't have to pay it. My Lord paid it. And so baptism represents that. It represents a cleansing um, from the inside out. And then um, lastly, it represents a resurrected life. So Jesus, when he died, he didn't stay dead. Can I get an amen? That's what Easter was all about last week. He is alive, and he still sits on his throne in bodily form. He is alive. He is actively working in this world as the resurrected Lord. And just as he was raised to life, so will we be raised to life. And in fact, we already have access to this new spiritual life right now. He says this, God made, says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So when somebody gets baptized, they're saying, God has made me alive. I was dead, spiritually speaking, but now I'm alive. Christianity is not good advice for good people. Christianity is God waking the dead. It's not even God helping the sick. It's God waking the dead. That's Christianity. It's God fully resurrecting us. And so what that means for us when we get baptized and as we contemplate our baptism is we need to be, remember we've been made alive, so stop sleeping in the grave. If there was somebody who was resurrected physically from the grave, they would be a really foolish person when they're like going home to their family and be like, all right, guys, it's getting late. I'm going to go back to the grave because I got to get some sleep. But that's what you do every time you go back into your old ways back into your sin, back into your life of death. You're just going back into the grave. You're like a dog that returns to its vomit. And God's like, stop. You're like a blind man who's been healed of his blindness, but thinks that it's better to walk around with his eyes closed. Stop. You've been made alive. So live. Live with Jesus, for Jesus, for his glory. That's what it's saying. Okay, so that's resurrection. Now what I want you guys to see with this, there's this change of heart, there's this new life, there's this forgiveness. It's all stuff that happens on the inside. It's inside out living. Now this is a huge contrast to uh, legalistic religion. Legalistic religion is outside in living. The gospel is inside out living. So Tim Keller says it like this. In legalistic religion, you say, I obey so that I can be accepted. That's outside in. You have to get your life together, and then God will love you. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you say, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Because God has forgiven me, because God has given me a new heart, because I'm his child, I love him and I want to obey his commands. That's the fundamental difference between Christianity and all other religions. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's inside out. Now the last thing um, we have here is not only did he transform us, he also granted us victory, amen, by defeating the devil and putting him to open shame. It says in verse 15, after he talks about forgiveness, he says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When you see in your Bible rulers and authorities, it's referencing the devil and demons. And so this is very interesting because to put a ruler or authority to open shame, this would have been a concept that they would have been well aware of. When kings would go to battle, if a king was captured, they would strip him, often naked. They would chain him around the neck, and then they would parade him through the streets so that everybody could laugh at him. He had no weapons in his hands. He couldn't fight anybody. He's been completely disarmed. He couldn't kill anybody. Now he was just being pointed at and laughed at. And this is saying, this is what Jesus has done to the devil and demons when he died on the cross. But isn't it weird how he did it? How did he do it? He himself exposed himself to ridicule and open shame. It was Jesus who was dragged through the streets. 
It was Jesus who was mocked. It was Jesus who was spit upon. It was Jesus who was pierced with open hands, holding no weapons. It was Jesus who was stripped naked. It was Jesus who was told he wasn't powerless. But at that moment, as he seemed to be dying in complete shame and powerlessness, he was actually displaying his full power. As those nails went through his feet, it was really his heel that was going through the serpent's head. Because what he was doing is he was disarming the devil of all of his ammo. The devil is an accuser. The devil is a condemner. But if Jesus takes all the accusations and all the condemnation upon himself, the devil ain't got no ammo. Right? And so for those who are in Christ, you could be like, you ain't got nothing against me, devil. Now, of course, your life is going to be hard. Paul says that you're going to battle against flesh and blood. Or your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the power and principalities of this present darkness. There is a spiritual war going on. This is true. But at the end of the day, when the devil comes knocking at your thoughts and he starts condemning you, saying you're a horrible person. Look, you've broken God's commands. You don't deserve God's love. God doesn't want to talk to you. He's going to curse you now. You can say back to the devil, devil, you're right. And in fact, let me tell you some more sins you didn't think about. But let me also tell you about my Lord who took it all on the cross. You are defeated, devil. And you get to say to the devil, you can go to hell. Because it was made for you. Whereas God has redeemed us from hell by taking hell on the cross. So that we can go to the place of heaven with him. And so... That is the last thing. When somebody gets baptized, they're coming out of the water as a victor. Not because they've accomplished the victory. We're like the kids who don't ever play. We're like the kids who sit on the bench and the other team, you know, the rest of the team accomplishes a victory and we still get the trophy. God is the one who fought our battles. God is the one who fulfilled our righteousness. God is the one who defeated the enemy. But we get the victory. And the devil... God says, Jesus says, if you're one of my sheep, I'm never going to let the devil snatch you out of my hand. And so there's great confidence for you. And so as you sit here today as somebody who's not just witnessing baptism, but you sit here contemplating your own baptism, I want you to remember that. That if you love Jesus, you're good. You may feel like a screw up. You may feel like he wants nothing to do with you, but you can hear this word that the devil has been put to open shame and Jesus will never let him Try you out of his grip. You belong to Christ. All right, so let's have a moment of uh, just thanksgiving. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for defeating the devil on our behalf. Thank you for giving us the promise that if we resist the devil, he will flee. Thank you for giving us a way that we can know you. Thank you for being the full revelation of truth so we don't have to go elsewhere. We don't have to keep on looking. We don't have to try to find some sort of secret knowledge. We can just have you. Thank you, Jesus, that um, you've given us a walk with you and you strengthen us so that we can walk with you. We pray right now for all these people getting baptized across northern Nevada, not only at our church, but also other gospel-believing churches, that you will help them walk with you forever. 
that, that their faith will be genuine and pure and from the inside with a changed heart. Maybe you will help them so they don't fall away or just go into other things, but that you will keep them close to your side. And I just pray, God, that as a people, we could be thankful for this walk and we could enjoy your presence. And we're sorry, Lord, for thinking that your presence is a drag or that it's boring or that it's too much work. Thank you for going through all the work on the cross so that you could forgive us even of those terrible thoughts. Lord, we love you. Give us more joy, we pray.